Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just a reminder that this episode was recorded pre-lockdown, back when we could all be in a room together. Enjoy listening. My friend said to me, um, she said, my mental health is fine when I have good exercise, mm-hmm. good sleep, and mm-hmm. good sex. Oh, well. And I don't think people talk about good sex as being good for your mental health ever, really. Do you ever hear that? And I actually think it's a good point. I talk about it. You talk about it? Yeah, oh, sorry, I'm eating a cookie. I talk about it. I think sex is very important. That's why I feel very lacking right now. I feel a little, like I have more anxious dreams than I normally do right now because I'm not having any sex because my husband is not here. Really? Mm-hmm. But, but no one talks about that. I'm have talking about it right now. I know, but I'm saying <laughs> we both agree that that is a really good thing. Yeah. But people don't talk about sex and mental health. And I, I do masturbate furiously, though, and that helps. Mm. Wow. Masturbation is great. That's why I think it must be awful being people who don't do it. I also think... Sex and masturbation are very different things, don't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but as in well, this one is groundbreaking today. <laughs> um, I'm Alan Cumming. <laughs> well, I'm glad somebody remembers. <laughs> I was thinking I knew you from somewhere. And, sorry, and I'm Christopher Sweeney, and this. It's Homo sapiens. I feel like I'm slick. I'm sitting a little further away from you than I normally would. I'm gonna come on closer. Yeah, let's talk about um, our guest, Patty Smith. It's an extreme privilege to talk to Patty, isn't it? Because she really doesn't talk to many things. And you guys, and she's a huge Alan Cumming fan. I know. Came about. She's a darling. Um, And she wants. (laughs) She wants my job. She wants your job as. As the host of Masterpiece Mystery on PBS. So, <laughs> Patty Smith, coolest person on the planet, potentially, mm. is a huge fan of... English mysteries. Any kind TV of mysteries. English mystery TV show. Yeah. So she loves Broadchurch, which I just thought was amazing. Yeah. But um, a lot of what... Uh, I suppose a lot of people... I think my way into Patty Smith was because of her relationship with Robert Mapplethorpe. Right. Because they were both artists who moved to New York... In 1960s? 69. No, that's not right. Um, when was it? 70s, maybe. A long time ago. It's good that we're so on point, isn't yeah. it? I'm glad we got all this out in the interview. But uh, they were, he was gay, but they were in a relationship. And they, I think, and we talk about this in the interview, that they were a lovely model for a modern mm. idea of a relationship. Which well, I think it's interesting that you say, uh, you say he was gay, but they were in a relationship. I think they were in a, lo- a relationship. And later he was gay. Do you think that was the way round? Uh, do I think he did gay relationships before her? Yes, perhaps. But I mean, they were in a relationship. And yes. then he was a gay man. 
They were, I mean, they had a very big sexual... All I'm saying is I'm really intrigued by the way that we kind of um, erase mm -hmm. gay men's heterosexual sexual uh, relationships and experiences. Yes. So I think... <clears throat> yeah. None of it. And I just think it's something that you know, happens, you evolve, you change, you know, give it a go. They obviously had a great relationship. I, I gleaned from that book is that he felt he was keeping something from her. That's what I felt. From, from Just Kids? From Just Kids, the book that she wrote. Mm -hmm. Is that, and that's, and, and I suppose then. Well, ultimately, yeah, I guess, yeah. So that was all. But, but I think listen, you can, I have. I mean, but it's like I feel as someone who I've been married to a woman, I've had relationships with other women, I think it's unfair and disrespectful and um, unkind as well to, to assume that those relationships weren't anything but, in, you know, in completely uh, full-on, in-love sexual relationships. Yeah. And that wh whatever happened to me in my life later or in between or before, mm. it does not, takes nothing away from what those were and the, and the sincerity and the, and the truth of them. See what I mean? It, I do, and I think I think I say we say this in the interview. Like I feel like they were. I think in the future it will be much more like that, and it won't be discussed. And I feel like they were doing yes. that then. I always say sexuality is like a holiday. You don't want to go to the same place all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to go now and do some agony, uncle. B writes. Help me, Homo sapiens. Yes. Um, after a string of monogamous relationships that ended with me feeling bored and trapped and then confused and heartbroken, I realized the only relationship model that makes sense to me is polyamory. I vowed never to go back, but I've met this really great guy. He's funny, smart, cute. He's the kind of person I can talk to for hours and not even notice the time passing. He's also scared of polyamory. Amory? Amory? Amory. Like amour. Amour. We discussed it and he said he could imagine a relationship where we'd ask each other's permission before doing anything with anyone else. Given my history, I'm pretty sure this would make me feel trapped. But I haven't met a guy that's such a good match in years. Should I give this a go or will it end in another disaster? What gender is, uh, is B? Uh, B is male. Yeah, so it's male, male. Um, so it was, he wants to know whether he should give it a go in a monogamous in the, the basically uh, B's other half is saying we need to ask permission before we do stuff and here's what I think it. about that I have very strong feelings about this Go on. I think we're not designed to be monogamous especially men mm -hmm. I don't think women are either but I think it's um, I think we can be mm -hmm. but I don't think it's our natural state and I think that especially with a male male relationship uh, I think I think you have to I think you have to factor in the possibility that you're going to have sex with some other people before you die. And so I think yeah. you have to demystify it, de-fetishize uh, it, and um, just make it not a scary thing. Talk about it. I don't think the thing about, say, like if you see someone, you think, you know, oh, hello, I'm, I'm in a hotel. I'm, off. Yeah. I'm in a hotel somewhere. Hi, darling. There's somebody downstairs. I quite like to go and shag them. How, can I have your permission? Yeah. That's not how you do it. I think they want to shag me. I'm not quite sure. I think it's a quite a thing of like, if it happens, it happens, and if and you you are kind and honest and about it, and you've got some sort of understanding about it in your relationship, you have to talk about it first. But I yeah. think it's very important to have. We are fed this myth, mm -hmm. uh, everyone, it's straight people, gay people, everyone, that uh, we will meet someone, 
fall in love with them and you'll want to have sex with them only for the rest of your life. Now, of course, you you will hopefully want to have sex with the person who's your partner for the rest of your life, mm. but you won't want to just have sex with them. It's just not, we're not built like that. We're not swans. What do you <laughs> think, Chris? So calling up, like you say, when you, yeah. like from the hotel room, like it, it's not going to work. Okay. And I think like, I completely agree with what you're saying. You need to just discuss it before because basically it feels like this, I this person, B's other half, is kind of conceding on something they're not happy about. Yeah. And I think you just need to talk it out first and go, this is what it is. And, and here's, it isn't. Here's what would happen. Here's what would, yeah. yeah. And also the other thing is you, B can't go into, if he's considering saying, okay, I will be monogamous, then you're, you're on a wicket to nothing or whatever you call it. What's the phrase? Yeah, hiding, hiding to, to nothing. nothing. You're not, you know, you know that's not you. You know that's yeah. not right for you. Yeah, yeah. As much as you want to please this person as great as they are, you're going to fuck it up. Don't do that. Try and find a way with this person. Maybe you should like all have a partner together, mm-hmm. to the two of you, and just like see how that feels, and then you know go from there. Just it's not the scariest thing in the world. It's not the it's not the most pleasant thing in the world necessarily to think of your partner with somebody else. But like if it, yeah. if, if it's going to be a possibility in your lives and in your relationship, then you just have to discuss it and be kind to each other. Yeah, totally. Be kind and make sure you're both. Be kind. Be on the same page or as Harry Styles say treat people with kindness TPWK see Harry he's got it all going on hasn't he just have you got have you interviewed him on this thing no let's do Harry Styles next time let's do Harry Styles he's probably listening moving on now um, shall I read another one yes please okay Um, is Lala a variety champ or a specific breed she's a Heinz 57 variety Lala is a She's a mixture of a collie and a spaniel. Mm-hmm. And I got her uh, DNA, t- a doggy DNA test on, because everybody said she looks like a fox. And I thought, maybe she's part fox, because yeah. she was on the streets of Costa Rica. I thought, maybe, I don't know, do foxes have sex with dogs? Sometimes they might. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be fascinating. She's not. There's no fox in her. But there is something like, you know, mostly collie and, collie and spaniel, then a way, way down, like a tiny percentage, was something like a Doberman pincher or something. Really? But uh, she's such a good dog. Like this weekend, when I was in the country, there was three big black labs and then a lurcher. All boys, all running around after, I mean, running after deer, being crazy, running, you know, blah, blah, like dogs do. And and we're running after her. And she was so, I really loved the way she handled them. Really? She like was running away from them, kind of, you know, just sort of going, I'm not interested. And then occasionally she would do a warning salvo of, don't fuck with me, fellas. Yeah. She's a calm soul, isn't mm-hmm. she? She really is. Soul. She really is. There's so much, I had to read that one out because there's so much love for Lala in the messages. Um, everyone asking, everybody asking about you, Lala. <laughs> she's just looking at me like, yeah, and. Um, so here's another one. Um, can I point out about something about dogs that please. I would like to say? Someone, there was a question I saw on the list is that um, I would always, always um, adopt a yes. dog. There's, you know, also, even I know people say, oh, we want to get a thoroughbred. Often the thoroughbreds you get are not what you think. Mm. And anyway, um, don't be an elitist kind of sort of, you know, third Reichy sort of, uh, what do you call that thing? White supremacist? Yeah, That's not the word I'm looking for. What Uh, do you call it? I mean, it's not the master race. You're just trying to have a nice dog. So I would always say there's so many lovely dogs. Yeah. Uh, who are who need homes and um, and also there's all these dreadful you know things from pet shops all these puppy mills and all these awful things. Always, always adopt. Uh, this is uh, P, who is a woman. When a friend you've known for a long time starts to bring you down, do you ghost them? 
like what ghost means just don't call them yeah I, no you say what the fuck's wrong with you mm-hmm. why are you being so mean to me yeah i think you don't i don't i think i think ghosting is only fine when it's somebody you don't really know do you know what i mean <coughs> and as a last resort if you've and asked someone, a last resort like when somebody's yeah. just bugging you or like somebody's trying to be your friend you don't want them to or they're just someone someone's a what do you call it a, a thirsty as yes. the obamas say <laughs> um when someone's spit, and you just you know uh, you know how some people do that like yeah, yeah. wanting something and you kind of think well uh-uh. i think that's fair enough to just say i'm just not going to reply to you yeah yeah but when it's someone you as your friend talk it out yeah because it, yeah if someone like you don't owe anyone a response if you don't know them and they want something you do not owe that person yeah. a response <clears throat> but with friends Ghosting is the worst because totally. you're ghosting them because you're, I can't think of a situation where you're not, you're only doing that because you're scared of having a difficult conversation. Uh, you're afraid of confrontation. And you've got to have it out and with people. Say, you know, why, why can't you just say, I don't want to talk, I don't want to be a friend anymore. Yeah. Because they're going to, because the other thing is that two things, you are going to just get, if you've decided to not be friends with someone and you don't tell them, they're just going to keep bugging you because they think, what the fuck? And also, Conversely, if someone uh, keeps uh, contacting you, that doesn't mean they're your friend. Yeah. You know, if someone, so just because someone keeps contacting you and tries to be your friend, and they are like, why are you not getting in touch with me? Why do you not call me back? You know what? It's because we're not friends. So, but you have to be open and you have to be vocal. But yeah, and I think friendships need the uh, people, friendships are great, <laughs> obviously, but they, they don't just have to be fun. You know, you can actually, they can need a bit of an MOT sometimes. Totally. To be like, do you know what? I'm not actually, you know, if, if you, this person's saying their friend is bringing them down, well, they may not know that. And sometimes someone's using a friend to replace for a partner or they've just broken up with someone or whatever and just yeah. say, look, that's not what I'm here for. We you all know. go through cycles. Awesome. And also your friend, when you've been friends with someone for like long, long time, decades, they're sort of your family. Yes. And you know, like with your family, like you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, my mum's bugging me. Or like, oh, that cousin's such a pain in the ass sometimes. Yes. But they're always going to be there and they're always going to be a part of your thing. So you have to find yeah. a way to deal with them and to make them, yes. to bring them around or to be open with them. That's mm-hmm. the thing. Family doesn't go away and friends who are your family don't go away. So very true. deal with it. Was that the end of Agony, Agony Uncle? Certainly was. Um, and now, Patty fucking Smith. Is it true you own a pair of the Pope slippers? What? I own a pair of <laughs> wait, wait, Benedict. No, no, no. I own a pair of Benedict the Fifteenth. Is it? It is the Benedict in 1920 or 19 during World War One. There mm. was a pope named Benedict, and he um, he was opposed to World War One, and uh, he wanted to be the Pope of Peace, and he uh, you know protested the war. And um, of course, World War One happened. He was very heartbroken, and his only real claim to fame was that he canonized Joan of Arc in 1920, because Joan of Arc was almost forgotten. Really? Um, she wasn't. Uh, Mark Twain wrote a book about her, and uh, but you know because she was killed by her, she was betrayed by her own people. Mm-hmm. So, um, but he canonized her, and then the Joan of Arc cult really blossomed. And he was rather tall and very thin, Pope Benedict. And his slippers went to a Belgium. <laughs> this is the craziest story I've ever heard. His slippers <laughs> wound up in a Belgium uh, monastery. Um, and the uh, priests became very old 
and there was only a few of them left, and they were obliged to sell the second and third class relics so that they could live, right. not the first class relics. Oh, I see. So there was an auction of these relics, and at the time I was photographing slipper, like I, I would do things like I would photograph beds of people like Virginia Woolf's bed and, and Robinson Jeffers bed or different beds and poets beds. And then I was, um, I had Robert's slippers that he had when he died and I was starting to, I had Noriev's slippers. And when I saw these slippers, I thought, well, I could get these slippers and photograph them and then donate them somewhere. And so I, um, I actually won them in this auction because they weren't really coveted. What did you go to an auction house and? No, it was on the inter Online. on the line. Just on Somebody eBay. helped me do it. It wasn't <laughs> eBay. No, it was an actual quiet little auction of somebody helped me do it. Got it. And they weren't a whole lot of money, but um, I got them, and I photographed them, and they were quite. They're golden. They're sort of golden. Um, and with like goldish threads and uh, um, a bit worn. And he had rather, for his time, long feet, which, um, you know, was very interesting. But uh, I took a very nice picture of them. And so, but after, and I still have them. For a while I thought to give them to the Pope that is now named Benedict, but it's not like I have his address, like, oh, let me send these to Benedict. <laughs> the Vatican. But, um, send. <laughs> so I still do have them. I mean, I, they should go somewhere, but uh, they're actually next to Robert's slippers in a glass case, so oh, wow. they're commiserating. In, uh, wow. Um, Play your card right, it, Alan. You funny, might get a pair of <laughs> the, 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 the Masterpiece Guy slippers. <laughs> Robert knew I, I love Joan of Arc so much, and when the first when I first met Robert, um, we, he, he had given me a drawing that had, it was dated May 30th, which is Joan of Arc's feast day. And so I told him the story of Joan of Arc and what she meant to me. And he was always finding me little medals, little Joan of Arc medals and ah. things in pawn shops. So uh, Robert didn't live to see the fact that I had these, uh, the slippers of the Pope who canonized Joan of Arc, but I thought I would put their slippers together. They, nice. And, and the, the Pope's slippers are like burnished gold and Robert's are black velvet with his initials RM embroidered in burnished gold. So they look very- oh, that's nice, they match. They look very well oh, together. And that's, is that, I remember from, from Just Kids, there's this description of him when you go and you were trying to get in and that man who was there at Chelsea for a long, 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 long time. Stanley Bard. Stanley, yeah, because I had friends who, you know, were living there up until fairly recently and he was, I, I saw him and, Everything, but I remember the, there's a description of him being so sick, Robert, so sick, and you're trying to get, is that right, you're trying to get a room at the Chelsea? Yeah, we had no money, and there was, the reason we went to the Chelsea is Robert had heard that you could exchange art for rent, and both of us were visual artists at the time, and we both had big portfolios of very good work, really, um, I think very advanced for, I mean, our work was good, and better than the, anything they had hanging in the lobby. Um, even with the Larry Rivers. And so I went in and I, you know, I had a lot of hubris in those days. And I, I just told Stanley that I would like to trade, um, uh, I, I would like to trade our work for a, month, a week or two at the Chelsea. And he wouldn't be sorry 
that it would be worth way more someday. And, uh, and he said, no, he, he didn't want to even look at it. And I said, listen, we're desperate. My friend is very ill. I have a job at Scribner's. I have a steady job. Let me let him sit here. He's got a fever. Let me go up to Scribner's and ask for, you know, $55 advance. I made 65 a week. And so I asked for like a week's advance. And the room was 55 a week. And I think the fact that he was very impressed that I had a job, uh, because hardly anybody had a job. We used to joke I was the only person that had a steady job in the whole hotel. Uh, and uh, so he let Robert sit there, and I just ran up to, I went up to Scribner's, and, and they did give me an advance, and that's how we got to stay. And he n didn't want our work. He never took our work. And the work in there, even my work, um, you know, sold, has sold for quite a bit of money from that period. And uh, so he, he, didn't, did. he didn't make a wise decision. <laughs> <laughs> but he was very nice to let me at least trust me to go up and, yeah. and, uh, and get the week's pay. And we were, I was never late. I always paid our rent on time. And uh, so he came to trust us. It was, it was a struggle because both of us visual artists, both of us you know, myself being very high energy in this tiny little room. But, um, you know, we believed in one another and, you know, we both found ways and found people and found spaces to express ourselves. And one thing I have, uh, and I could be completely wrong, but I've often, you were saying like, you know, you always paid on time and things and you always, you had a, a solid job for many years and you, while you were doing your yeah, creativity. Yeah, I always worked, even when I, I mean, I worked I started working around 14, and uh, I was the oldest of four children, struggling family, so I had a, I had a good work ethic. And um, Robert also worked. He worked uh, in bookstores and part-time. He, he did window trimming at FEO Schwartz. He moved pianos. But I was able to work all day and still happily work at night. I was thrilled to be in, I was from a rural, rural South Jersey. Mm. I was thrilled to be in the city and to be working in a bookstore mm -hmm. near all these books like Audrey Hepburn and Funny Face in the beginning, <laughs> beginning of Funny Face. To me, it was very romantic and um, it didn't hurt my creative input, but Robert really could not, after working all day in an oppressive situation, it was very hard for him to work uh, in the evenings. and. Uh, and he was naturally so prolific. And I finally told him, just do, you know, work, on your, work on, on your art because I knew that he was going to, I knew he was very special. It wasn't just that he was my boyfriend and uh, boyfriend or not, I believed in him. Yeah. And I, I, I said, you, I'll work and you, uh, and you evolve, you, you, you do what you can. And he really fought, fought against that but finally, I, I just convinced him. I mean, it was really um, a point of pride to him that to, to make it, and then he was going to give me everything. I mean, there's on, I think on the back of the, there's a little letter that he sent me for our first or second anniversary where he said, someday, you know, we're going to make it and we're going to, I'm going to get you a house. And, you know, he always wanted to get me, you know, I'll get you a house by the sea. I'll do this and that. He, it wasn't um, a lack of desire. 
it was just, you know, he, it was very hard to make a, a living as an artist at that point, especially with, for him who was doing, after a while, things that were still very controversial. Yeah. How long did it take him to support himself and be, and be a artist? Well, it artist? was in the mid, I mean, really, the mid to late 70s. Um, I mean, he had at that time his love and patron, Sam Wagstaff, who had a lot of money and supported his projects. But Robert was absolutely obsessed with, with um, being independent. And uh, so he had, he had help, but then he was, was especially, I mean, Robert didn't live that long. He only lived to be 42. Wow. So the last uh, decade of his life, when he was starting to really come into his own and make some money, and then, and then he didn't live long enough to right. you know, build Enjoyed. on that. But um, um, I supported him happily, but he, I mean, we supported each other. Mm. Because Robert's way of supporting me, I mean, he encouraged me, he encouraged my work. He, when I didn't have anyone looking at my work except for Robert. If gallery people came, when he was at Pratt, if professors came to critique his work, he would ask them to critique mine. He wanted, he was very proud of my work. He was proud of, my, you know, he was the one who really pushed me to do my first poetry performance, um, to sing. You know, and um, I mean, his belief in me and his encouragement was golden. Yeah. You know, I mean, yes, I was the breadwinner, but he was the one who had the most, uh, you know, the, the most consistent belief in himself. He didn't doubt himself. Yeah. I was, you know, the, the, the struggling, you know, oh, I was like Camille, you know, <laughs> oh, I'm not very good. Oh, I'm, what is, it's, what's the use of doing this work? I'm, you know, I'm not worthy. <laughs> But he was like, he never was like that. He always believed in himself. So he really insisted that I stay in step with him. And I still, the, a lot of the courage that I still have was um, greatly instilled within me through him yeah. at a very young age. When we first met, we were just like any young, we were only 20, mm. any young couple, you know, we had. Uh, you know, he was romantic. We were, you know, happy. Um, but as he went, as he went deeper within himself, and as his nature, you know, he could no longer either suppress or, you know, I, I, it's hard to say because it was a different time. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't know. Um, you didn't. I mean, he was a boy like a boy in high school. And, you know, um, most, I think a lot of young men who weren't, um, you know, who didn't have uh, affectations um, hid, hid their nature or didn't grapple with it. Others who couldn't not grapple with it because it was so part of their, you know, um, natural way of being, uh, they seemed, you know, those were the, the fellas that you knew. So I had no idea that, that Robert was suffering. Well, you um, never talked about like well, he no, was bisexual because, or, or anything. No, because back then you just didn't. It it just didn't occur to me. Right. You know, you only I came from an upbringing where everyone was accepted. My mother had a lot of um, 
they didn't, the word, the term gay wasn't really used at homosexual friends. We had transvestites in our house. We had uh, people of color. We had, you know, Jewish people. And that might seem funny, but after World War II, there were a lot of prejudices, strange mm -hmm. prejudices. And my parents were the most open-minded people. And so my upbringing was open-minded. It's just that I wasn't aware of the spectrum right. of um, homosexuality. I thought that homosexuality was a very limited spectrum. Like but a only binary because, almost, like yeah, you're either straight or gay. Kind of yeah, yeah. Or, or that you, even less than that, mm -hmm. just that it was a more, um, that it was a more, um, how did I say, more colorful. <laughs> you know, there wasn't a, a fellas that just seemed like, you know, um, boys in high school, I don't know how else to say oh, it. It sounds so, it sounds so, uh, to talk about these things now, um, you know, but if you, in that time period, there wasn't a vocabulary mm. for guys that appeared straight who weren't straight. Right. It's yeah. that simple. It's almost like, unless they were visible in some received way that people were portrayed on television or something. There wasn't really anything outside of that, like a flamboyant Yes, because, and or, they, yes. they didn't reveal themselves. Robert, mm -hmm. in our first couple of years, I, you know, we did everything boyfriend and girlfriends do. You know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't lacking with affection from him. Your needs were met. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, and I, but, but once, you know, then we, when we had to go through the various stages of him, um, coming, you know, coming to terms with his nature and then completely giving over to it. We had so much to, um, there was so much to save in our relationship, you know, that, you know, people, uh, sometimes people criticize um, my, you know, how I speak of us, like I'm over romanticizing our relationship. And I caution people to remember, we were only 20 right. yeah. in 1967. That's different than being 20 in 1980, 1990, mm. the 21st century. Mm. 20 in 1967 was a lot different. And people didn't, we didn't all, we had different questions. It wasn't even the biggest question wasn't what your sexuality was, was how to get out of going to Vietnam, for instance. Right. What are you, what is your feeling about the war? What is your feeling about civil rights? There were very, uh, all the assassinations that were happening so it wasn't at the forefront yet, yeah. and, um, and, and, and so we did have a very romantic youth. He was very romantic, and we were young. I mean, both of us were also very awkward and late-blooming. Right. I mean, he, he wasn't, uh, we weren't the most uh, uh, experienced. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
did you because you were talking about that vocabulary that you both didn't have when he started to reveal to himself more reveal to you more about himself did that make you think oh we can still love each other and this can continue well, yeah. and in the end it, well there were very it was there's a lot of complications but also you know i was evolving too Right. It wasn't all about Robert. Yeah. I was evolving too, and, and in the end, we both um, started pursuing other things in life, but the core thing about our life, uh, the core thing to save wasn't sex, wasn't who, who was, you know, were we gay or straight, or were we a couple of convenience? It wasn't any of that. It was we really, we were work-centric, and neither one of us had any no one knew who we were we weren't anyone but we believed in ourselves we were struggling we were working he he really respected my mind we both respected each other and we had developed this bond where we really felt that we hadn't met anyone who got or understood our work as much as each other uh. that was very important to robert even when we got older, he still, he always loved for me to see his work first. Mm. Robert, you know, when I wrote a song, I sang it to him. I, when I did a drawing, I showed it to him. Affirmation from each other in terms of work right. was very important. And we, uh, it was something we couldn't let go. Away. It's like, that's like the, the first person who gets you. Yeah. Who doesn't want to change you. That's beautiful. Well. That's exactly. And, and so that was what... That was why we were able to surmount the difficulties of, um, of, of accepting, you know, the change in our relationship. Yeah. There were tears. There wasn't so many fights, a lot of weeping, um, a lot of trying again. Or, but in the end, I remember we were in, at the Chelsea and we had one mm. whole night where we went over everything. And by daybreak, we knew now we had to we 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 had to part as a couple, but we were absolutely not going to part as friends and co-conspirators. So it does feel like what was going on with you and Robert back then was like just way ahead of its time. And actually, I think that kind of concept could be explained now, and someone would understand that this is a couple and. You know, it's a fluid thing, and neither of them want to well, call I don't it what even, it is. I don't even know that. I don't know. We were just. I. I don't even think we were fluid. We were two people who, who suffered, the consequences of. It, it wasn't an easy matter. It wasn't like. I mean, I would take fluid to mean that it was very easygoing and everyone was happy. Right. And you know, it was. It was challenging. Mm. It was challenging when we decided. All right, now. For a while, we weren't. We were still sleeping in the same bed. Then we were going to be in different rooms, in different bedrooms. That was very difficult. Yeah. And uh, and for both of us, we kept coming, knocking on each other's door, you know, and having a bad dream or something. It was, you know, the separation was difficult, and also jealousy. You know, a certain amount of jealousy. You know, funny because he would have a boyfriend but then be jealous when I was with Sam Shepard you know so um, but it was more expression of you know again we were young yeah right yeah. it seems was 
you talked about your family being very open and, 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 and having so many different nationalities and genders and people of different sexualities. Is that, why do you think that was? Well, your mum was a jazz singer. Was it my because of mother, that? My mother just, that was just the way she was. So it wasn't because of her circumstance? Well, she was, if she, I mean, was, if she was very, um, she was just open-minded because she had also, when she was young, uh, she lived down south for a while. She saw um, a Ku Klux Klan meeting as a young kid. Mm -hmm. She saw uh, during the war the the boys that the hom the boys who were homosexual that didn't go to war because they weren't even allowed to to um, you know they couldn't hide something or and she saw how they were treated and my my mother was always for the underdog <laughs> so when she saw you know prejudice against uh, people of color. Or, you know, when there was a lot of um, people that came into America, whether they were Jewish or Polish, or, and when she saw how they were treated, my mother was the first to open the doors to them. No one else will take you. I remember when I was uh, on tour sometimes in the 70s, I would come home to visit my mother in South Jersey in her little house. And I'd walk in and there's all these guys or male couples and everything and she said oh this is she would introduce me and they would send like fan letters to me and I'd be away and she'd answer them and they would talk about how their they were their parents disowned them and they they were alone without a parent and she said well come here and so that she uh. was like their the adopted mother of many people who were um but they stayed really diso disowned and mm -hmm. so that's just that's the way she was i mean it could be you know someone in the neighborhood who you know had really bad cancer who had nobody to take care of them she'd open up the couch and say you can sleep here till you die you know it's just i know it sounds funny but that's how that's, that's how yeah. we were raised and i think because of that the one thing it did though was i wasn't completely aware of how much suffering was going on you know, right. because in where I saw it in my own home, you know, in in my own living room, I saw all kinds of people accepted and loved, mm. right. and that seemed like the natural way. Was it a shock when you went into the real world? And well, saw it? it was. I was. I was. The two things shocked me. One was how people were treated on one end, and on the other end, if people who were fighting for their rights became too militant. So either way, I felt, you know, uh, it was difficult for me because I just like, I just f look forward to a time when we all just live together, you know, and we don't really have to define ourselves. But that, that was my philosophy from a very young age was I was against defining myself. And I think we're in a different culture now. I mean, obviously we're in a different culture. Mm -hmm. So one can't criticize culture as it evolves. It's, I mean, I'm gonna be 73 years old. This, the culture that is forming now is the culture of the young and they are forming their own way of maneuvering and, and navigating our difficult world. How did you two first ever meet? Oh, I remember how I met you. I was at a, I was at a party uh, in a shoe shop and Patty was performing Got in it. this shoe shop, and um, a posh shoe shop. And I remember afterwards, I w was taken to meet her mm. and she said, she looked at me and she went, 
you're the masterpiece guy. <laughs> and I was like, what? And she went, you're the masterpiece guy. And she went, on, on, I'd host on, on PBS in America, it's a thing called Masterpiece Theatre. And on, I'd, I, I host the mystery bit. So every time, it's always, a, it's always British yes. TV shows, like Sherlock and Warren. I got it. And I like, love uh, you know, Foyle's War. And I come out of the shadows and go, Miss Marple had no idea. <laughs> love she it. Would, the, she was going He's to get great. on a train and this train oh. would change her life. And it's just like a minute and it's all in one shot and then it sort of sets you up in a sort of mysterious way for the TV show you're about to see. So I met Fatty and she said, she, got, she said, <laughs> he said, you're the mystery guy. And I went, oh yes, I suppose, I see what you mean. Yes, I am. <laughs> Not expecting, you know, I'd just seen... With all Mrs. the things he's done, that's what <laughs> yeah. I think. No, but also I just seen you rocking out in the shoe shop, and then you, then you were saying you watched something. I was starstruck to meet him, oh. thrilled because you know um, someone, um, the woman that played Emma Peel. Oh, uh, Diana Rigg. Yeah, Diana. I'm yes. sorry, God bless her. Yes, I she, took over from She her. was hosting it for a while. Yeah, and then there was rumor she was going to leave, and I had this dream of doing it. It was like my well, dream job. That's what job. you said to me that day. You and said I, I've always wanted that job, and I was like, Oh my God, I'm never <laughs> telling them. And she said that I'll get fired immediately. No, I could never do it as good as him. And then at first time I was like, Oh, somebody's got the job, but he was so good at it. But my my daughter was was laughing at me because I said. She asked me what I was doing today, and I told her, and she said, I said, you know, he does masterpiece theater. He, she said, Mommy, do you know how much he's done in his life? Do you know how many movies he's in? Do you know how many, how about, you know, all the wars he's gotten? And I said, yeah, 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 but he's my favorite thing. Is, is, it's so hilarious. But I that's actually because remember, that's I, one of my favorite, that's my favorite thing on, on TV are these shows. I love yeah. British detective shows. And also shows. it's such an old-fashioned thing. There's no other thing now where you, yeah. someone comes on and hosts and sort of sets you it. up. But it's for the mystery, it actually makes sense. You know, it gets you in the mood of all and mysterious. Is it, is it, sorry, I've ne- I have to admit, I've never seen it. So you intercutting between the shows? No, at the beginning. Oh, so okay. each episode, it's, but it's a new thing, a new series. I, or each week or something, I come on and it's on and it's sort of one long sort of crane shot and I'm wearing the colours of the, it's Edward uh, Gorey, it's the artist that they use for the little uh, montage and so it's red and grey and, red and grey and black colours and there's Edward Gorey illustrations and so I come out in some sort of red and grey and black um, ensemble and (laughs) and do a little, like less than a minute little sort of pressy of what you're about to see and then I do raise my eyebrow and the camera pans off me and because yeah, you you love crime drama right or yeah, British? I love British crime drama a detective Midsummer Murders and yeah things. I love I watch them all uh, George <laughs> Gently Midsummer Murders I've watched Whitechapel oh. every I mean what about um do you like Rosemary and Time that's a little square. Well, that's I, what I, I was when wondering. I'm, when I'm <laughs> when I'm, I have watched it. I don't know that one. What's no, that? Not... I kind of love it because it's ridiculous. Oh, well, okay. Sorry. But I, <laughs> no, I mean, listen. But I like, uh, you know, I, I love these uh, Wallander and, oh, and Morse yes. and, and, and Dever. Broadchurch? Did you see Broadchurch? Broad I love him. I had such a crush on him for a while. I get oh, crushes yeah. on these guys. I had such a crush on George Gently. And so... Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, what is yes. it about them that you? What is it that hooks you in? Do you think their mind? Right. I well because they're all flawed men, or I like teams <laughs> like on the killing. I love Lyndon and Holder. Right. Uh, she was unbelievable. She's my fa- most famous female detective. Uh, I like that they have to unravel. They're like poets. They have to. Mm-hmm. 
They have to deeply concentrate on the same thing, the same line, the same paragraph, the same um, to get their punchline, which is to get their man, to get their collar. That's a really interesting and, analogy. And I just love following. Well, when I was a kid, I loved Sherlock Holmes. I love. It's it's not the crime. I'm not interested in crime. I don't like suspense. Uh, I don't want to see violence. I just want to watch how the uh, detective how unravels the this mystery and how sometimes they make the, they make mistakes that are actually fatal and cause you know other people to be in danger. I mean, they make they're they're, they're beautiful and flawed people. These detectives. I'm going, talking of British. De- TV shows, I'm going to say these immortal words. More tea, Vicar. <laughs> Do you ever get, have you ever been asked to be in anything like that? Well, I've been in two. Uh, two. Uh, the first one was, my, the, was Criminal Intent, and I loved Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh, yeah. And I, I loved uh, Gorham and Eames. They were the, the team that I loved before. Uh, Lyndon and Holder. And Vincent, I was such a fan of the show, he said I could come and watch them do the last season and I would go up to the Chelsea Piers. And one day he said, you know, we only have about five more episodes. Why don't you be in one? Wow. And so I said, okay. And um, he asked me, (laughs) I had to play a Columbia professor and he's trying to figure out some Icarus myth and something about the labyrinth. So he comes to see me. So I, I have one scene in it, but it's with Vincent D'Onofrio. Wow. So I'm sitting behind my desk, and he comes and asks me, shows me you know, a, uh, an interesting map, and I go, I'm supposed to say, ah, the labyrinth. But I had only done theater. I've done theater in my life, mm-hmm. and projection is really important. So I was like, oh, the labyrinth, <laughs> like this. And Vincent sat, you know, and I did my lines, and Vincent just sat there quietly, and he said, Patty, when I was working with Stanley Kubrick, (laughs) when I first did my lines, he said, all right, Vincent, when you're delivering your lines, cut your intensity in half, and then cut it again. (laughs) Ouch. No, but it was like, he didn't say, you know, he didn't say anything direct to me. He just mm. said that, and he said it very contemplatively. And, I but I got it, and so we did it again. And so then he said his line, and then I went, ah, the labyrinth. There and then go. it was fine. And oh, then yeah. I was fine. But that little lesson got me ready for my next, my next big job, yes. was to be on The Killing, which was my absolute... Uh, favorite show for Wait, is The Killing the one that's based on the Norwegian one where half the body is yes. on the, either side of the bridge? So oh no, I, that's The Bridge. The well, Killing the bridge. was before that. That's when a young girl named Rosie is killed and the whole, uh, a child, a young girl is killed and the whole thing is t- trying to find the killing, uh, the killer of this young girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it also was based on a Scandinavian yes, thing. Oh. Yeah, I love Scandinavian. Oh, uh, they're so good at those chilling Wallander chilling and mysteries. Just, yeah. But, um, so I, the same thing, I wrote them fan letters because I loved the show and then uh, Venus Sud, who was producing it, sent me a message and said, come to Vancouver and you can watch, if you want to watch it shot because we're in our last season, it was finished. And There's I said, pattern emerging. And yes. I said, okay. <laughs> that visit turns into a And then role. she wrote me and said, 
well, if you're coming, why don't you do a, a, a cameo? And I was like, okay. And I thought, okay. They did teach this at drama school. What kind of cameo <laughs> would, would I do? And I think, well, a homeless person, a stool pigeon, because I'm rather messy. I thought I can just wear an overcoat and messy hair and just like. So I get there and they give me my script. And I'm playing a brain surgeon. And, and so I named Nurse Ann Morrison, and I had to wear, you know, a lab coat and have a clipboard and, and be very, um, you know, uh, dismissive to Lyndon and Holder, my favorite detectives. So I had to do a scene with my favorite detectives and be extremely dismissive because they wanted to see my patient and... Uh, there was no way I was going to let them uh, see my patient. Naturally. So I just remembered what Vincent told me, and then I also thought, okay, um, you're a brain surgeon. These are like, you know, hotshot detectives, young detectives coming in. I'm older than them. I have a patient who has, like, been shot in the head. They want to talk to my patient. Fuck them. So I just <laughs> yeah. kept my attitude. And we did the scene. And then they said, fine, cut. And I was like really disappointed because I wanted to do it over and over. Uh, you had one <laughs> take. They said it was wonder. fine. And it was a great thrill. Do you know if I remembered another thing that happened to us is that I actually wrote about this in my book, that when we were at Cannes one time at the, at, for the film festival, and it was like a, for the Amphar Gala, and there's a picture of me, Patty, and Marion Cotillard standing on stage all looking like we didn't know what the fuck was going on because we were it was just and it was Harvey Weinstein and he was sort of the kind of organiser of this thing and I was being sort of very controlling about it and we were waiting for something to come for somebody to come to the stage that Harvey had told but we, we, we didn't know and, and then I remember I said I, I got a piece of paper and I said oh so now we're just going to wait we're waiting for Mary J Blige to come back and she's going to do a duet with Patty and then you turned around and I felt like the whip of air because you, nobody told you that you were supposed to sing a song with Mary J. Blige. Oh, God. Did I Did I sing one? I can't believe it. I don't, I, I don't think you did. I think you I think sang one my, each, just did one song. Yeah, that, because... Yeah. That, that what was happened, Harvey trying to, you know, fiddle and meddle and... But he did, but he did uh, manage to get Lenny Kay and I to um, do Gloria with one acoustic guitar um, That's right. For like sixty thousand dollars or something. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting. So I was just the other week. Uh, we were at a thing, uh, an event party, and she sang, and you sang this um, an Neil Young song, and I thought that what struck me was beautiful, but what struck me is that you're very generous in the way that you you sing other people's, you 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 laud other people and you do other people's work. A lot of people don't do that. You know, performers oh. who and writers especially would just stick to their own thing. But that seems to be something you've always done. Well, because I love our people. You know, I love the people who especially, I mean, there's a lot of great new newcomers, young people, but the people of my generation are just right before me who really developed our cultural voice. They opened up my world. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Neil Young and Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and all of these people. And songwriting does not come easy to me and it's not one of, I think, my higher gifts. Um, I come from poetry, they're a bit more, sometimes too complicated. And then you have Neil Young who has such, he distills everything down, like Smokey Robinson. You know, there's mm -hmm. just these, 
um, he, he has this poetic nature, Neil, but he says all the things that need to be said so simply with such a beautiful melody. And so he speaks for me. That little song I sang speaks to so many things that I'm thinking about, so many things that are happening right now in our world. And um, um, people longing for a home, people, you know, um, denied a home, uh, the destruction of our, of, of our, um, uh, of, of, of the earth, destruction of nature, it's all in this little song. And um, so I feel very privileged to sing it. Plus we sing in the same key. So, uh, <laughs> so it's quite easy to sing Neil Young songs. Andy. <laughs> who, who do you admire of, of today's generation? Well, it's funny. I was just listening before we came here. I was watching. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll check somebody out. I like this, uh, this um, Billie Eilish girl. Oh, yeah. I think she's quite interesting. Uh, I like her. Uh, she has a, she had, she has she has good moves, uh, but um, I'm not completely. Uh, I'm not really that knowledgeable on what's happening. I'm sort of, you know, when when people ask me what I'm listening to, I'm listening to the soundtrack of Japanese manga movies, or I'm listening to my Jimi Hendrix records, or Coltrane, or Wagner. Right. But uh, every once in a while, somebody appears that I that I rather like I like her what do you do for exercise um, many things go up and down stairs constantly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I walk a lot I have my own um, um, <laughs> I, I do what I call fake ballet dancing <laughs> and I sort of have my own uh, set of movements and uh, um, that I do that are like stretching right. and uh, and I'll do them for you know intermittently through the day and I just like to home. dance yeah I love the idea of you just doing your fake I've been doing fake I've been doing fake ballet since <laughs> I was a t I I really wanted to be I for a while I wanted to be a ballet dancer and my younger siblings were very nimble my father was a dancer he was a tap dancer and an acrobat before World War II oh, wow. and he was very nimble uh, but I was much taller, almost a foot taller than them, very skinny, a bit awkward. And so it was my idea to have ballet lessons, and a woman uh, in the neighborhood gave ballet lessons in exchange for my mother doing her ironing. So my mother did the ironing and sent us to ballet lessons because I wanted to go and I dragged my siblings. Well, after three weeks, she called my mother and said, Linda and Todd are terrific. They might even be in the, our little annual show, but can you keep Patricia home? <laughs> so that was everything. Was like, no so I realized, I realized that I wasn't going to like make it as a ballet dancer. So I watched ballet and on TV, and I did my own. Good for you. My own, yes. my own private ballet. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't have any trouble in in. Uh, failing if I do the best I can. Mm, yeah. That was the, that was when you asked me earlier, you know, how do I deal or how can I go through all the things I go through and screw up or um, make a big mistake in front of so many people and then just own up to it and try again. Mm. Because my mother always said to, to us, just do the best you can. If you've done the best you can, if you've held back, if you were lazy, then that's another yeah. thing. Yeah. But if you've done, given it your all, then feel good about that. 
And I've told that to my, my son and daughter. They've come on stage with me since they were young. And, you know, I wanted them to see me make mistakes on stage. Both of them are musicians. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to see that the world doesn't end. You know, yeah. if you mm -hmm. ruin a line or you, you mess up the chorus or, you know, you hit the wrong note, that you just simply take a deep breath yeah, and, yeah. You know, and that's when you again. connect with people as well totally. you know it's people like a mistake it. is like wakes everybody up in the audience I remember you saying a wonderful thing along those lines about when that happened at the Nobel Prize and you said after you forgot some lines then you picked it up and you, you know you finished the song and it went well all these Nobel Prize winners came up to you and said this happens to us all the time all these mistakes that we've made is that right and they, you... well they I said ah uh, they said, that was so great. And I said, I wish, I was in tears. I said, I wish I could have been better for you. I wanted it to be perfect. Mm. And they said, no, 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 no. It was like it validated all of our awkward moments. <laughs> so there was, and uh, so that was very nice. Ah, oh, bless you. You're awesome, yeah. So that was Patty Smith. Darling, darling Patty. Um, well, that was great, wasn't lovely. it? Yeah, one of my favourites. And also she said that lovely thing to me that I'll never forget. It's not a failure if you have tried your hardest. Oh, I love that. I know. She's a very philosophical person mm -hmm. uh, who makes life feel simple when you're with her. Yeah. Please write and tell us what you thought of that Patty Smith interview. Yes, uh, write to hello at homosapienspodcast.com. Now, um, is that it? Well, no, Subscribe. I Subscribe. Subscribe to your, you know, just like order us. You know that thing where you do, so you say subscribe or it's not subscribe. You say to a podcast, you subscribe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just press subscribe so you always get it. Yeah. So don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you get every new wonderful shiny but episode. Like, how people have fallen upon this? They presumably subscribed to have got to be giving us right now, right? Not they? always. They might have been sent a link by a friend saying you must listen to Alan. Oh, I see. On this wonderful. Oh, well podcast. then. So probably if they go back, if they see the picture of us, that means they can click something and they'll subscribe. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's as simple as buying a t-shirt. And then, um, <laughs> bye everybody. Bye. Thank you for Thanks listening. for listening. Bye bye. Love you. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Powered by Spirit Studios.